Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives, and of course. we want to learn about their core principles of investing essentially a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing vetri subramanyam is one of india's leading fund managers in this episode of the investor hour vetri shares his thoughts on how to pick stocks and build a portfolio he speaks at length about position sizing and a bit about how to detect fraud in a company for anyone wanting to get better at stock picking this is a must listen okay uh vetri thank you very much for making time to come on the you know equity master investor are delighted to have you uh i want to kick this off by really starting how we start all episodes of investor are tell us where you grew up uh tell us a little bit about that tell us a little bit about uh uh your home you know your parents uh we're just trying to put a, a mental picture to where you came from and what you ultimately went on to do Sure, sure. So, um, I didn't grow up in one place because uh, my my father was with a very transferable job, so he was with an engineering company, and that caused him to sort of move from location to location. Uh, so, even though um, you know my mom and dad both are Tamilian, but I grew up all over the country. I was born in Bangalore. um lived in some villages in the vicinity of bangalore lived in gujarat haryana down south tamil nadu so pretty much grew up all over the country till i was about 8 years old uh, and then only when i was about 8 at some point we realized that a traveling circus was not a feasible model for the family so it was finally decided that because the company dad worked with was you know headquartered out of chennai so we took a call that okay there's a lot of family in chennai the company headquarters is chennai so one way or the other for him chennai will be a magnet so let's relocate to chennai so uh, chennai became home after that but what it also meant is that i was pretty much a nomad when i got to chennai um, and in 1978 that was a big challenge because what it meant very simply is that i couldn't speak a word of tamil and uh, in 1978 in chennai you couldn't get by if you didn't know the bit so yeah it was baptism by fire um, you know i had to sort of quickly get used to at least speaking the language i never learned to read or write tamil i actually did hindi throughout school but um, you know yeah that was a bit of a baptism by fire to get used to the idea of talking tamil uh, and you know for me going to a new place was never a challenge because i'd already done it several times before i landed up in chennai but uh, the language was sort of the big you know change because till then i had gotten by with my english and my hindi but suddenly chennai meant you know tamil became a priority uh, so that was a big change but then i did all of my uh, you know school from sixth standard fourth uh, standard on the way till high school and then college in chennai So yes, I mean in that sense, Chennai is home. That's where family is, and that's where my mother is now as well. 
So that is pretty much, uh, you know. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned your father was uh, in an engineering company. Would you mind sharing the name? Uh, what company was yeah, it? He used to be with uh, LNT for most of his career. Yeah. So uh, LNT is construction division is actually headquartered out of Chennai. Uh, engineering construction corporation is what it used to be called but now it's just a division of lnt but the construction group headquarters has always been chennai not bombay so that kind of explains why you were in the rural areas because that's where the big plants come up and <clears throat> yeah so you know uh, mangalore there was i think at that point a fertilizer plant under construction gujarat there was a ntpc thermal power plant under construction Panipat was fertilizer factory. Then um, um, outside Bangalore was Chennai uh, was Kaveri water supply project uh, supply to uh, Bangalore. Then Kalpakam outside Chennai was the nuclear power plant. So yeah, I mean been everywhere. <laughs> Courtesy wow. Lassen and Dubro. <laughs> wow, you got very early on. You got exposure to uh, uh, you know how how it comes up. Uh, what about since you stayed in so many states, did you pick up any other languages along the way? Uh, there was a time where I could speak a little bit of Kannada and Gujarati, but long forgotten. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd say, you know, you know, at home, even though my dad and mom were both Tamilian, uh, my dad was very fluent in uh, Tamil. Uh, mom is now fluent with Tamil, but she was a Bombay girl, born and brought up naval um, you know, father, so they only spoke English at home. So, therefore, the language for us at home while growing up was always English, it was never Tamil. So, you know, any conversation at home was English, it was never Tamil. I think the Which is why Tamil was such a big change when I went to Tamil Nadu because I'd never heard it at home. Yeah, but uh, you know, they say that uh, the best time to learn languages is when you're young, it just you just pick it up naturally. As you get older, it becomes more difficult. So I guess uh, you just probably gotten in the nick of time <laughs> to pick up Tamil. Yeah. Okay. So uh, okay. So uh, and then I've uh, been away from Chennai now since 1992. Though so really, for me, more than anything else, it's now Bombay, which is home because I've been here since 92. Uh, you know, I got married here. Kids grew up here. So yeah. So I mean, to me, Bombay is now home. Not really Chennai, though. Chennai obviously has some very strong bonds and connections, you know, mother, sister, family. But yeah, I mean, Bombay is home. I don't see myself going back to Chennai <laughs> as home. You love the traffic too much in Bombay. Let's just put it <laughs> in that. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, somewhere along this, uh, before I move uh, forward, was your father, because he was an LNT, did he have stock of LNT? Did they have grants then? Or were they investing in stocks in all those days? IPOs, stocks, anything? My dad used to invest in a lot of IPOs, but LNT didn't have any stock options or uh, no, they didn't have anything of that sort at that point. It was unheard of in India at that point of time, right? But investing in IPOs, I think, as a culture in India has been there for donkeys. Years. So yeah, right. so he used to invest in a lot of IPOs and I used to see that. And uh, I think some of the IPO investments he made, he perhaps made in my name as well at that point. I still have those paper certificates with me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember any names of IPOs from those days, late 70s, early 80s, I would assume? Yes, very much I have stuff. I mean, the one in which I think he invested in my name was Indo-Gulf Fertilizer, which is actually a Bidla Group company. Okay. But Indo-Gulf, subsequent to various mergers, is now effectively... Uh, so effectively, those shares converted into shares in Grasim and Ultratech. 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that one for sure. Then you know, there were a lot of other stuff like, um, I can't even recollect some punni, steel, dharni, sugar. I think many of them are defunct. They don't even, you know, yeah. maybe. I would, I, I would go on a limb and actually say that Indo Gulf fertilizers was actually considered a blue chip those days. It was, I think it must have been part of the sunsets at some point of time. Uh, in history, because there were four uh, horsemen of this old Aditya Birla group, right? There was Grasim, uh, there was Indian Rayon, uh, then there was Indo-Gulf Fertilizer uh, and Hidalgo. And then, of course, some of these other entities got created, including Ultratech got created much, much uh, later. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, okay. So, you had an IPO exposure. When did you get around to making your first investment? Well, on my own, that would have been after I started working. So that would have been uh, sometime after June of 1992. Um, and I think, um, once again, I mean, at that point of time, the IPO market was quite hot. Uh, so I think the first stock I bought um, via an IPO must have been a company called Waterbase. I think it's still around. Uh, yeah, this was the days when shrimp farming was very hot. Right. So, uh, yeah. this was one of the first few shrimp farming companies that came along. I think it was part of the Thapar group, if I uh, recollect correctly. And then in the secondary market, I think the first company I bought um, must have been one or two years into when I started working. And that must have been uh, what at that time was Madras Cement, which is now Ramco. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. Uh, so... Uh, instinctively it comes to mind shrimp farming is a momentum play it's hot it's cover <laughs> uh, madras cement i guess is boring so there's a little more work involved that's why you took one one and a half years to get to that but uh, june 92 you took up your first job and it was in the investment space it was related to uh, this field uh, well i took my first job in 1992 which was with the kotak mahindra group well at that time there wasn't much of a group it was one company kotak mahindra finance uh, but I joined the company and of course then they determined where we would get posted. Now it was my hope and uh, desire to get placed in investments but remember hiring on campus so I got hired from Bangalore so the hiring on campus typically takes place you know Feb March and then you, you know, join work in June uh, and in between these two dates the security scandal broke out. So by the time we got to our jobs and reported at Kota, they came, you know, they sort of told me that, look, most of the divisions are, um, you know, don't have any work right now because of the security scam. You know, Kota used to also be very big in bill discounting. And, you know, after the scam, the bill discounting came to a halt. So they said, look, the only division which has any work whatsoever is car loans. And therefore, a big bunch of us who got recruited that year from campus uh, a, B, C, L, Bajaj. I think the biggest chunk of us ended up uh, selling car loans uh, in Kotak because that was the only division which was actually growing quite well at that point of time. Many of the other divisions were either sort of retreat or on pause mode. Yeah, and and uh, this was in Bombay. Was this in Bombay, Kotak Mahindra? So they had yes, the sir. office in that big office <clears throat> in Darwin Point. Was that the office? Or they had offices elsewhere. No, as well. no, no. So um, I think the registered office is still Nariman Bhavan. Uh, if I recall, I think even today. So this is a building called Nariman Bhavan, uh, and then on the second and third floors is where Kotak used to operate. Um, the building you might be remembering would either be Mittal Court, which is where yeah, the first one. branch came up. Yeah. That's where when it became a bank in 2003, the first branch came up. 
and then of course the headquarters of the company as well as the bank used to be the Bhaktavar building, which is right next to Nariman Bhavan in uh, Nariman Point. But uh, the uh, original office was uh, second floor and third floor of Nariman Bhavan building. So car loans, uh, who would have thought from I am Bangalore or second <laughs> investments doing car loans? How, how was it? How did it go for you? Well, as I said, you know, I look back and uh, I think it was the best thing that could have you know happened to me because it put me into a role that um, I was certainly not prepared to do. Uh, but not in the sense of being resistant, but I just didn't think I was cut out for it. And um, secondly, it sort of put me into a zone where, um, you know, I didn't think this was my strength. But because I got parachuted into this role, you know, on day one, um, I just had to learn how to do it. And perhaps it taught me things about myself that I would not have discovered early on uh, if I had not been forced into that role. So, you know, I most probably, you know, passed out of I am Bangalore thinking, you know, I'm incapable of ever being in a sales role. I don't know how to do a sales job. I don't know how to talk to customers. I don't know how to persuade customers. But, you know, this was the role. And therefore, I just had to learn on the job very, very quickly. And I had some top-notch sales guys as uh, colleagues. And they were, you know, brilliant sales guys. So, you know, pretty soon within a year, I learned some of their tricks. And uh, I still don't think of myself as a great salesman. But, you know, I learned the basic toolkit, which uh, I don't think I learned while I was at I am Bangalore. So, you know, in a way, I'm very glad because A, it taught me about operating in a zone, which is not your comfort zone. And B, I realized that this is a skill that, you know, I could acquire, I could teach myself how to do it. And, you know, the other thing, when I look back over my career now, you know, almost 30 years plus, you're always selling in life. If you're not selling to a customer, you're selling to colleagues. If you're not selling to colleagues, you're selling to your team members. When I say team members, you could be selling to those who are reporting to you. You're selling to those you report to. You're selling to your board. You're selling to, you know, of course, customers. So, you know, selling, I think, is a very core life skill. And I doubt I would have been pushed into it. So I'm very glad I got pushed into it right at the start of my career. And, uh, nice. I now think of myself as competent, not brilliant, but competent. <laughs> and, and to jog the memory of our viewers a little bit, uh, those would have been Maruti esteems and... Uh, uh, what have you, gypsies and all that those days? Yeah, Maruti 800, Maruti. Uh, yeah. So it was not called the esteem. When they launched it, it was called the Maruti 1000. 1000, yeah. It was called the Maruti 1000. And then in 1993, the big uh, activity in my car finance career was Maruti decided to launch what they call the Maruti Zen. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and when they launched the Maruti Zen, um, they had this sort of lottery-based uh, booking system, right? So you pay 25,000 rupees um, and you make a booking and then the company will pull out a lottery and then decide who gets the car when. Uh, and the lottery, in effect, could have been traded, right? So it was very interesting because, uh, therefore, people came just to participate in the lottery and they were leveraging themselves up. So, you know, today you talk about leveraging up for participating in IPOs, people were leveraging. And in fact, the product we were offering at Kotak at that point of time was if you really want to get the car, don't make one booking, make 10. Yeah. And you'll need 3000 rupees as interest cost to cover you or whatever that number was. 
So you pay us that interest cost upfront, and we'll fund the you know booking for you. So that if you get the booking, you know then you either get the car at a slight premium, of course, because you had to pay the interest. But more interestingly, you can sell the booking, <laughs> right? Or you can sell the car, whatever. I don't remember the nitty gritty of it. Yeah. And remember, early delivery of the Zen at that point, you know, you could extract maybe even a lakh of rupees if you were able to you know get the car early because you know everybody wanted it. So it was actually a you know financial speculation, and we were sort of the financial providers enabling people to you know make bulk bookings of the car. Reminds me of the Morgan Stanley Growth Fund IPO, right? Where the yeah, firms like and the units were trading at a premium. It's amazing, uh, you know, how people find ways to trade uh, in the market. Uh, so, uh, so you spoke of you know the water base. You spoke of uh, Madras Cements, which became Ramco Cements, of, of course. Uh, do you remember which was the uh, the first big uh, blow up in terms of an investment that you made? First big blow up in terms of an investment. I mean, actually, a whole series of them. But I would say the worst investment I made, and I, I knew it was never going to be a you know particularly great investment. But remember, the IPO markets were very hot at that time. And when the IPO markets were very hot at that time, suddenly these NBFC IPOs looked to be, you know, very, very interesting, right? Because... Uh, 94, 95, right? Yeah, so, these, so these companies would come out with an IPO. Um, then, you know, you leverage your book and you don't have to leverage it too much. You leverage it up two times, three times. And suddenly the EPS then goes up because you've leveraged it and you got a higher EPS. And now on that higher EPS, you get paid a multiple... And therefore, it appeared to me that NBFCs at that point of time were, you know, very hot investments. So I must have invested in some four or five NBFCs during that period. I most probably made money in the first one or two, but I still have a share certificate of a company that's called Defunct now called Interglobe Finance. So I still have the 100 share, share certificate me as a reminder that, you know, it worked the first two times, but didn't work after that. So... Uh, you know, I think that company eventually went bankrupt and got delisted at some point of time or compulsorily delisted. Today, of course, we have a different Interglobe. Uh, isn't the Indigo holding company called Interglobe? Yeah, yeah, but this has nothing to do with that. Of course, so, of course. Yeah. No, no, I, I'm just, no, I'm just saying it in the context that we have a different Interglobe today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, this is, you're still at Kotak doing car loans and all this is passing you by. The You missed the Harsha Mehta blowout. Yeah. And, uh, but you you got involved in the IPO, the FIR rush and the IPO stuff and all that. Then what happened next? When did you move to the investment side? So, yeah, by mid-93, I'd been doing this car loan business for a while and then I was getting pretty bored with it that, you know, okay, I've learned the sales bit. I do the job reasonably well, but, you know, this is not where I see myself being long-term. Um, and, you know, thankfully, I had a fantastic boss who ran car finance in Bombay. In fact, he ran it countrywide. And um, the person he reported to uh, who, uh, uh, is still a director, uh, Jairam, C. Jairam. So he's a director now at Kotak Bank. So he was my, you know, sort of skip level boss, if you call it that. And he was also the person who hired me from campus. So, uh, you know, my boss told me that, look, why don't you sort of go up to him and discuss, you know, is there some other role? I went up to Jairam in 93 and told him that, you know, look, I think I'm done and dusted with this car finance bit. It's not where I see myself going long term. So is there some pathway that you see where, you know, I could do something else? Um, and I think he turned around and said, look, you've done this for a year. 
the card finance business is you know still growing and we want to sort of expand our operations in bangalore so why don't you go there do that for a year and then we'll have a conversation after that so i took him up on his word i went to bangalore for a year uh, helped sort of scale up the card finance business over there and then in you know may june somewhere most mostly april or may of 94 he was visiting bangalore and uh, he remembered our conversation from a year ago and he actually made me ride with him in his car to uh, i think it was either to the hotel or to the airport i can't quite recollect and then on that ride he asked me what do you want to do have you made up your mind uh, about you know are you clear that this is not what you wish to do and what is it that you would really like to do and i told him that Look, this is not interesting what i really like to do is be somewhere in the investing domain because that is what you know interested me right through campus and it so happened that uh, he was not only looking after car finance uh kotak also had a proprietary investments uh, desk uh, which actually did two things it gave loans to people against shares but it also had its own proprietary book where it had investments in its own name so that was also a division which reported into him so for me this was uh, you know just perfect symphony so uh, he turned around and said look i can move you to that division if that's what you want i said you know great that's really what i would look forward to and i also knew the person who was running that proprietary investments group because as i said you know both these divisions reported to jaira yeah yeah or yeah. i knew both these guys very very well and um, you know he was happy to have me in the investments desk uh, rajan um, he was my first boss who taught me pretty much most of what i know about investing and um, you know so i moved there in june of 94 and joined him Uh, to support him on the investment desk and that's when you uh, dive deep into fundamental analysis etc etc absolutely so when i joined him he sort of first got me started in terms of thinking about you know how to analyze companies and he was a very very i mean he is a very very bottom up oriented investor you know very sort of diligent in terms of what he looks at what he chooses to buy reads annual reports as a pastime so i learned a lot of that uh, you know from him at that point of time uh, so that would be somewhere around you know june of 94 where i started uh, as an analyst supporting him on the investment desk and you know again a lot of this is just serendipity you know in life it's luck and therefore i always look back with gratitude uh, and it so happened that in mid 95 uh, kotak decided that they would get into the mutual fund business so uh, one year into my investing role supporting rajan on proprietary investments uh, kotak mahindra decides that they should set up a mutual fund and they transferred my boss rajan to the mutual fund as the cio right so i've done two years of car loans i've done one year of proprietary investing supporting rajan and then in 1995 jaram turns around and says okay you've been helping rajan for a year but he is now going to the mutual fund so now you please do this on your own <laughs> so uh, again you know just sheer luck you know i mean when i look back the role of luck in all of this is something you just have to be grateful for because i don't think in today's day and age anybody would you know hand over the prop book to a mba grad who's sort of just been support to the guy running the book for just about a year how did it feel like uh, uh, and if you could talk a little bit of the scale and what you were doing uh... so it was a reasonably large size book uh, in that days and ages context because it was uh, it used to sort of move around a bit because treasury always had need for money and very often they would come to us to reduce the book 
but it used to rotate anywhere between 100 to 150 crores in 1995 which was in that, that era it was a fairly large uh, number so it was reasonably large it was very concentrated in terms of some of the large holdings that we had but there was also a small trading book attached to it and uh, you know that is what i started managing in uh, you know 1995 um, so i started doing that in 1995 uh, all on my own I had one guy sort of helping me, um, and then of course uh, there were you know two people who joined us from one person who joined us from campus who also joined me as an analyst uh, as support. Uh, so he came in in 1995, and so you know effectively a three-member team, uh, essentially managing those uh, investments. So it was great fun because you know it was a combination of the book that we had, some strategic investments we had to make as part of the group. Uh, because I was doing this, that was the first time in Kotaka, I recollect they had set up some kind of a credit committee. So they said, okay, you are doing investments, you are looking at the balance sheet. So you please come in and you know join the credit committee on some of its meetings. So you know, I was literally sitting at the high table, so, you know, some of the credit decisions at that point, because they said you have background on these companies and you're anyway doing work on them. So, you know, I got some tremendous exposure at that time uh, in terms of just the things that I got to do, uh, the people I got to interact with, and you know, just seeing the way they were operating, not just as uh, professionals but also the way they operated as leaders mentoring guiding nurturing uh, of course you always get you know shouted at for things as well but you know it was just a fabulous group of senior people that i got to work at at kotak at that point so um, you know i'm very grateful to all of them for the nurturing any hits like and misses any hits and misses from that period that come to your mind Quite a few because honestly, that 95, 96 was a very, very difficult time. You know, money had become very tight. Treasury continuously wanted money back. So, you know, we'd have a position that Treasury would say, we need the money. So you'd have to, you know, liquidate your positions and return the money back to Treasury. Uh, and remember, 95, 96 were not very good years for the market anyway. Right. 96 so the was, was the Asian financial crisis as well. Was it 96 or 97? Uh, yeah, it's more to 97 by the time it was the crisis. Yeah, but it was already a difficult time. So, um, you know, money had become very, very tight. This was the time when interest rates were double digit. If I remember right, IDB and ICICI were issuing bonds in 95-96 period. Uh, IDB safety bonds, I don't recollect what the ICICI one was called. But their rates were like 14-15%. And imagine the rate at which they were on lending. Um, Tisco had that secured premium note, which again was almost like a 16% uh, rate of interest instrument. So in general, money was tight. It was even tighter than it had been in the previous year or two. And as a result of that, you know, the market was selling off. So it was very difficult to you know run the portfolio at that point of time. Uh, the portfolio may have done reasonably okay because we had some reasonably you know solid names in it. But there was also a target to create book profits, but it wasn't possible to create any book profits. So, you know, if I saw the mark-to-mark -mark numbers, maybe the portfolio was doing okay relative to a collapsing number. But from the point of view of generating in a proprietary book positive PL for the company, that wasn't happening at that point. Yeah. And so what happens is that, you know, you have this Asian financial crisis. You have the, I think it was August 1998 when Russia collapsed. And then after that, you had the TMT rally and again, the crash. Uh, along this period, uh, you were the prop uh, book and somewhere after this, you moved to the mutual fund. 
So talk to us no. about that and also talk to us how you dealt with this whole phase, uh, the money you were managing. Yeah, so, you know, the prop book money I managed effectively lasted all of two years because I started it, as I said, in 94. 95, I took full charge of it when Rajan, my boss, moved to the mutual fund. So I ran it for about a year. And then by, you know, middle of 1996, maybe the third quarter of 96, I actually left Kotak, right? And I left Kotak and that's why when people ask me, I say there's no easy answer to this. Uh, sometimes you pick a job because you love it. Sometimes you pick a job because it pays you well. And in 1996, I knew that I was going to get married in 97. And uh, that point of time, Kotak's philosophy was it didn't matter which division you worked in, you all got paid the same, right? Which no organization has anymore. Certain verticals of an organization which would pay very differently from other verticals of the organization. But that was Kotak's philosophy at the time. I was getting married, so I was under some degree of financial pressure to, you know, improve my sort of income. And uh, I knew a bunch of friends who used to work at this firm called uh, SSKI, was a broking firm. SS Kantilal uh, Ishwar, I think. Ishwar, yeah. So they had a tie-up with Smith New Court. So they were one of the early brokers to deal a lot with the foreign investors who started coming into India in 92-93. By the time I joined them, they had broken away from Smith New Court, but they were still very, very well established with large foreign institutions as you know a research-based brokerage house. So literally, you could say at that point of time in India, there were maybe two foreign brokers, one half Indian, half foreign, and one purely Indian broker, which was, of course, uh, SSK which had a you know good organized research setup and you know providing inputs to institutional investors so i moved over there in late 96 uh, third quarter maybe of 96 uh, to the sales side simply because that job was paying me a, in multiples forget percentage it was paying me a multiples of what i was getting paid earlier and that was you know too big an attraction going into the fact that i was getting married in 97 uh, so I moved to SSKI in 97 uh, in equity sales. Again, interesting job because funnily enough, remember that I just started by saying I hated sales. And now I was actually picking a sales job uh, simply because, you know, money was extremely attractive compared to what I was doing. Uh, and again, I wouldn't say I was the most brilliant equity sales guy, but it was good because I got to talk to a lot of institutional investors, right? So I'd obviously learned a lot working with Rajan at Kotak in terms of investing. But, you know, SSKI sort of opened me to two further levels in terms of, you know, uh, investing. One is the fact that you had this very strong research team, extremely bright bunch of people who are doing hardcore research, meeting companies, creating the models, writing reports. But equally, I was interacting with top-notch global investors. So people from Singapore to Hong Kong to US to Switzerland to the US. And I started getting exposed to the fact that there are multiple ways of investing. And each of these people I was talking to and pitching ideas to came at it with such varying degrees of perspectives, right? And so again, it really opened my mind in terms of going from thinking about what I'd been taught in the past, which is there's one way I looked at companies, to realizing that there is one set of data, there is one narrative that I have, but there are people looking at it in so many different ways and so many different lenses. And therefore, you know, it's all very context sensitive. And I think what it also taught me is that there are many ways to skin this cat. It isn't that there is only one investing strategy that works because 
you know, I used to talk to Capital International at that point of time, which would know, you know, Capital is pretty much one of the most renowned global, you know, fund houses. And, you know, their thought process, they only thought multiples of years. They never thought three months or six months. And I also had some hedge funds at that time, well, technically called hedge funds as yet at that point, but they were quite aggressive. They would be happy to buy something today and sell it, you know, three months down the road. Whereas if I had a conversation with capital, they would say, you know, okay, even if I were to like this idea, it's going to take me one year to buy what I want to. So, you know, if you're going to tell me to buy a stock because it'll go up 20%, battery, that won't work because it's going to take me one year to buy what I want. So for all I know, I might have to buy this stock 20, 30, 40, 50% higher. But if I do the right company, I'm happy to own it for five to 10 years. And I'd never heard that language from anybody in the past, right? So again, I'm just giving you one example, but you know, each of these people I spoke to gave me very differing perspectives about how to look at investing. And that really helped shape my own thought process. And I would say a lot of the investing reading that I did actually happened in that part, right? When I really started reading a lot more books and seeing how people were thinking about it. So come to think of it, SSKI was your first job where you were actually in a true blue research environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's where your thoughts started getting formed. You were exposed to all these alternate Correct. views, ideas, questions being asked, which were dense. And Absolutely. And, uh, you know, many of these foreign investors and because uh, these guys had been doing emerging market investments for a very long time, right? Some of them were already in their 40s and 50s and they've been investing in emerging markets for 20 and 30 years. And again, you know, the importance of management uh, is something that I started to pick up only as I started talking to them and as I could see the blow-ups happening. Because, you know, as 96, 97, 98, 99 came along, we were seeing so many Indian companies go to the dogs. We could see so many of them where their policies, intergroup transactions, all of this were just not holding up. They couldn't be held up in any mirror or to any degree of transparency. And uh, therefore, again, you know, it really sort of taught me a lot about management, uh, integrity, how to think about which was not visible to me in 94 when I was investing in Interglobe Finance, right? It was simple Excel sheet investment, give him 10 rupees, he will leverage it 2x, EPS goes up and, you know, I'll make 25 rupees because he'll have higher EPS two years from now. <laughs> the exposures helped you and you got exposed yeah. to, uh, like you, like the many approaches, like you said, right? The many approaches, uh, many ways to skin the cat. Yeah. The one you got exposed to, one of them was through the firms like Capital which are long-term, dense, want to understand management, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess that's that's what ultimately led you to do what you do, did next. But before I, uh, I think after that, ultimately you, there was a share Khan in the middle, which is extension of SSKI. Yeah. Ultimately you came back to Kotak and as the fund manager, CIO. But before I go to that, how do you deal with the TMT uh, swing up and crash? Uh, did this new thinking of looking at management, et cetera, help you avoid some of those stocks that, that really burst out there? I wish the answer to that was yes, but uh, it wasn't. Also because, you know, sometimes we're in the middle of this stuff and companies are blowing the numbers out of the water. Uh, and this, I've again, therefore learned the hard way. And really the true worth of management only shows up after you've gone through a difficult time. When the times are good, and in 1998 or 99, the times were really good, this might sound strange to you. And I'll take only one name. The other name you can just say is many of the XXX. 
But honestly, in 98 or 99, it was very difficult to tell the difference between Mr. Narayana Murthy and company MD XX, company MD YY. They all seemed like they were geniuses. Businesses were growing, right? It was only after you went through the whole setback, the crisis, you know, their business models had been changed that could you see that, okay, you know, this guy really stands out, you know, he's really done something very, very different. He's built a business model, which is different. He's given you transparency from day one. They gave transparency before the whole dot-com meltdown happened. So, uh, you know, mistakes made were several, but I'd say it was also partly because during those, you know, good times, as I've learned the hard way, you can't tell the difference. Everybody looks like they're a visionary because, you know, they're delivering numbers, they're telling you a good story. The walks actually show up only after you've gone through a difficult period and you can figure out who's come out of it. And that's a principle even today I always espouse that. You know, only after you've gone through a difficult period, do you know whether this management is, you know, what it claims to be. Uh, and, 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 uh, sorry, if I can jump in and say something over here. Uh, and that is why every bull market has a new set of investors <laughs> because they're yet to burn their fingers and hands and learn the hard way that is not so easy. You have to do your hard work. You have to find the people who in the previous crisis, how they, what they promised, what they did. That they come through, and uh, I think that we're going we're we're going through that another phase in 2022, if you will. Sorry, you were saying. I just wanted to add that because that's no, no, a such an important that's message. Yeah, very valid point, um, and I'll come back to that to close on just one more issue. But I'll go to what you said about that 1998-2000 period. You know, particularly the massive rally in 99-2000. Because if you go back and look at it, Rahul, what you will see is that the mad rally actually was exactly for a year somewhere about the first quarter of 99 calendar to about first quarter 2000, maybe end of first quarter 2000. That was the mad. Prior to that, tech was doing well, but it hadn't gone mad. right? And if I look at that period, it was completely bananas because, uh, and I've written about this, um, you know, I think my portfolio went up 5x in the space of some 18 months. Uh, at peak, it must have been 3 to 4x my annual income. Right, so you were sort of drunk on how much your portfolio had actually gone up and you know, how much money you had made, and it was really painful when the drawdown came because uh, it went down eighty percent from peak. Right, so you were like back to square one in terms of the pain that you were feeling. Uh, the only good thing for me during that period, and you know that's why I would say I survived it, and many others did, is that I never leveraged. And if I remember that period, because I was on at Sher Khan, I was seeing what retail investors were doing. I would actually submit to you that, of course, the serious money was made, you know, while it was going up. But the problem was people were pyramiding. And if you remember how the whole Badla system worked without going into nitty gritty, it basically allowed you to pyramid very effectively because you were receiving positive mark to market income every, you know, fortnight. Right. So you could use that as a source of further pyramiding. Now, what happens as the result of this is that a position which is in the money, by the peak, your actual capital may be down to a fraction. The entire portfolio is nothing but the income that has been given to you and you've continued to pyramid. Right? So when it unwinds, you might discover that you're, you've actually ended up with a leverage of 5 is to 1, 10 is to 1, 20 is to 1. Right? And then you can't tolerate even a 10% drawdown. And I think the serious money was lost because of this. The people didn't realize that they ended up pyramiding. And secondly, into the first leg of the fall, somewhere between March 2000 to September 2000, people doubled down. 
And that's the thing that I'm most glad I didn't do. I didn't double down. I said, no, I'm not going to borrow. Whatever I had, it's come down, it's come down, but I'm going to stay put. But people really doubled down into the fall. And then, you know, by, you know, early 2001, the Ketan Parekh episode broke and, you know, everything was just a complete wipeout. So people just got wiped out on the leverage. But, you know, I survived it just about simply because I had no leverage. But the scar marks were there because, you know, Sher Khan was a, you know, sort of VC funded startup. We'd invested aggressively in the brand. We'd invested in technology to create the trading platform. It was only the second trading platform. First was ICSA Direct. Second was Sher Khan, which had a live trading platform. So we'd spent a lot of money. We'd spent on the brand. And then you come into this crisis in 2001. Suddenly, there are no new customers to be found. You're not pulling your weight in terms of the platform. And it was a very messy period. But to cut a long story short, by uh, middle of 2001, I knew that I didn't have a job for much longer because we decided to part ways with the original group. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't have happened at a worse time because suddenly my whole life had changed in the span of one year. Uh, in May 2000, which was, of course, the lovely part of it, I had a daughter. Soon after I had a daughter, six months later, my wife, who was well-employed with a foreign bank, decided that she would take a break. Uh, soon after that, my parents decided they would relocate from Bombay to Chennai. And so far, I'd been living in home with them because they had an apartment in Bombay. So we went from, you know, double income, no kids, to single income, <laughs> one kid. <laughs> <laughs> no house and most likely no job, <laughs> right? So, so that's why I say, you know, all market falls eventually are very, very personal. Yeah, and, you know, for me, it was brutally personal. But thankfully, you know, I called a few people. I called Kotak. I called Mr. Jairam and he said, look, you know, Rajan has decided he wants somebody at the mutual fund. And, uh, you know, if he's happy to have you, then we are happy to have you. And I'd already worked with Rajan. He was happy to have me. So, you know, it sort of worked out brilliantly. So I didn't really stay unemployed for very long. But yeah, I mean, so in a month or two, I was relocated back. And my wife also took a call that, okay, this is all too, you know, tense. So I'm also going to run a part-time job. I'm not going to call it quits. <laughs> nice. So uh, I want to reiterate something you mentioned. The leverage is very tricky. And I think we are recording this in the end of January 2023. And SEBI has just shared data that 89% of traders lose money. Uh, and uh, I think we are, everyone who's watching this has to be very aware of this, that it's not easy to make money by trading. And if you're trading and you're leveraged, oh, that's even worse. So please be careful of that. What I want to ask no, you- when no, Even is, in 99, 2001, same, same. we could see customer data when we were at Sherkan at an aggregate basis, and we could see that the traders were losing money. I mean, there was a brief period where they were making it, but yeah, I mean, that's good. So the other thing you mentioned is that uh, uh, that you did not double down, like uh, a lot of people doubled down uh, at that time. Uh, so the double down concept can work either way, right? So if you bought a fundamentally strong stock and you're convinced you've you know stress tested the idea, you've done your research and the stock falls, now the question comes, should you double down on the position or not? How do you deal with such situations? So, um, that's a good question. Uh, I think I got saved from doubling down simply because I didn't have any major savings at that time. And uh, 
you know the quantum of all in the portfolio was such that i didn't have any additional money to put so the only option was borrow to put which people were doing so yep. people who didn't said okay let's put little money and we'll double the position by going to the badla market so i had never bought any stock through badla i was putting cash down and taking delivery right but the other option was put 10% money and buy the same position with badla that is what people were recommending that just switch to the badla market and double your position I said that's fundamentally leverage, so I'm not going to do that. So in, that's why it's my inherent sort of bias against taking leverage, which sort of uh, saved me. Uh, from a portfolio perspective, Rahul, if you ask me from a bigger context, um, I would say two things. One is for you to increase your stake uh, in a company which is falling. Certainly, by all means, you should do that, and I think as a fund manager, I've done that several times. But you've got to do it for the right reasons. Right? You've got to do it for the reasons that the fundamentals are telling you that, you know, these stocks, um, are, you know, deserve to be bought. All that's happening is that valuation is getting marked down. Maybe uh, negative impacts are being interpreted as being longer term, whereas maybe in your thought process, they're medium term. The only place I would be careful about is in a downturn, don't try to increase the percentage position in your portfolio, right? So I've done it a few times, even as an active fund manager, but never to sort of completely bet the house. Right? So not to say, okay, here's a stock which is 3% of my portfolio. It's come down a little. Now I'm going to double the house and take 3% to 6%, right? 3% of your portfolio, it's underperforming. It's drifted down to 25 You pull it back to 3 Maybe the fundamentals are really great. You even raise it up to 3.5%. But you don't double down and say, okay, now I'm going in all or two. Right. And, and what I have actually learned just to conclude over there is that in many of these cases, you know, particularly when I've been chasing what I call the value end of my investment style, um, it's not unusual for me to feel a stock is cheap and the stock first greets me by falling 30% after I first bought it. So mentally, I've learned how to be prepared for the fact that after I think it's cheap, it's going to fall further, it's going to make me bleed. So be prepared to add more after it, uh, you know, comes down. But once the price starts to, along with fundamentals, give you conviction, don't be too scared of buying on the way up. In fact, I've found in many cases, you know, being willing to buy when it came down has helped me. But what has equally helped me is being willing to add more money as you actually got a set of data and evidence which gave you even more conviction that, look, now I can clearly see that everything is getting aligned over here. Yeah. So a uh, couple of points over here. One is, let's say you have a stock ABC and you determine 100 rupees is the price. So uh, a lot of people say, OK, let me put 25 percent of what I want to put because it could move and I'll buy it over time. I don't have to rush. And it falls 30 percent. Let's say in the example you gave, you look at the numbers again, you're convinced and you say, OK, I can continue to put on the 25, 30, 40 percent and take your position up to 100 percent of what you wanted. Uh, is the reason that a lot of people uh, do it this way, where they don't double down so easily, or they take this take up only to the 3% example you gave, is it because there's an element that the market may know something that you don't? Do you actually factor that in sometimes? Not, not the final decision maker, but an ingredient in your decision making process? That could be partly true. It could also be that things are going to take much longer to sort of play out the way you hope for than what you're currently estimating, right? Because you're never going to know why, when, and how eventually 
the stock responds to the positive stimuli that you believe are valid. And yep. all these three elements you don't know, and particularly the time element, I think, is the one you know least about. Uh, and therefore, you know, you always have to have that thing of saying, you know, the window might be broader than what I imagine. So, you know, I start, but I also manage it. The only sort of difference, Rahul, I would point to compared to what you're saying is that from a fund management perspective, I've therefore always approached this as a percentage of portfolio, right? Now, to be meaningful as a percentage of your portfolio, every name will have a different number, right? Because as a fund manager, I'm always up against a benchmark. So if I really like something, a very good starting point for me is that if this particular stock is 4% of the benchmark, I am not even going to make any money unless I'm at least above 4%. So that in a way already has told me that if I want to go in, I actually need to make sure that I'm at least close to that 4% mark. Now, once I get to that 4% mark, I'm in an equal game vis-a-vis -vis the benchmark. Got then it. I can still determine above, below, how much below, how much above. Same stock, if it is 30 basis points of the benchmark, my mental model is if you're not buying anything to at least 1%, anyway, it doesn't make sense. But I still say then go in, buy 1% and then sort of review what it is. So as a fund manager, typically my threshold has always been that if you're not willing to buy 1% on day one, then don't do it. Yeah. And if yeah. you're willing to buy 1%, do keep in mind that as it goes down, or as you get conviction that this is now working out the way I intended, you may want to move that position even higher. So position sizing to my mind is a very, very critical part of you know constructing your portfolio, managing it, and managing the risk. People don't pay enough attention to it. Uh, but most of what I'm telling you here, honestly, Rahul, is more in the context of the way I have managed money. Because remember, I mentioned during the Sher Khan days, I had personal investments. But pretty much once I joined the MF industry, I stopped investing in equities because I just felt, you know, why have a conflict between what I'm doing professionally and personally? So once I moved to the MF side of the business, I stopped making investments in stocks directly, uh, only in mutual funds. And then, of course, you know, my reference point becomes the way I'm managing the portfolio. Yeah, which is which is which is yeah, right. Yeah. The second point which I wanted to uh, sort of uh, emphasize what you mentioned is that uh, if you wanted to buy a stock worth hundred and you wanted to invest hundred rupees in it uh, and it starts to move up, uh, you should not shy away from buying it if it's again confirmed by fundamentals for two reasons. One, uh, it's still valid to buy, so you buy it. Second, your average price is going to be lower than the market price. I think that is something that works against uh, the, if I can say, the old style Buffett, which is, this is my price, so I'm not buying it, right? You could, I think I think there is a story, a famous story, uh, was it Banga narrated, where he says that Buffett walked out of a deal for like, for like a quarter of, like, uh, like, uh, like pennies, because he said, this is his price. And in hindsight, that was not a good deal at all, right? So, uh, yeah, so you have to think of average prices uh, when you're acquiring. No, 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 I'm not thinking average prices. I'm just saying, are you able to now see how these valuations make sense as opposed to price? I'll give you a simple example. When I was at the prop desk at Kotak is when the HDFC bank IPO came. Um, and I think we must have had some shares in HDFC Limited. So they most probably gave us some, you know, don't recollect the terminology. Yeah, it was some sort of preference. So we knew that we would get X number of shares in the bank. 
and you know it was pretty clear the share was going to list ebulliently uh, it listed well i think within a year it was up quite smartly uh, even from that listing price and you know we just looked at it and said oh you know this doesn't make any sense look at its valuation compared to others you know this nonsense number and you know we sold it and i think it took me almost 4 or 5 years to sort of get my hands around how that company was executing how they were sort of building the numbers and maybe 4 or 5 years later at a price which was significantly higher but i would say between any recommendations that i had at share khan and any portfolio that i've run since then that company has always been there and it's been a source of career alpha but if i had stuck to i sold it at 80 rupees in 1995 now i'll never buy it if it's above 80 yeah, it yeah. was my loss right yeah. so when you have the facts and when you have the valuation which are then starting to make sense you got to be able to change your mind too many people get trapped that you know but i saw it at 80 now how can i do it yeah. but if the facts make sense you got to be willing to do it. so it's, it's so interesting you say this just the other day we were recording a podcast with raj shikhar ayer mm-hmm. and this same point came up there and um, i was telling him this a famous uh, john minard kane saying when the facts change i change my opinion what do you do sir uh, exactly the point you're making and it's so true right uh, if you if you can learn to sort of imbibe that and make it part of your decision making process you of course make better decisions over time you'll go by current facts okay so uh, so uh, let's uh talk about your stock selection process a little bit right uh take us through on how you look at a stock and also talk to us about what are the red flags green flags that you look for so they can be like real takeaways for the listeners or the viewers so again this is you know part of the learning journey and i've talked about this and written about it as well that you know when i sort of started my investing journey that was they said you know somewhere around may june 94 um, and the market sort of peaked in september 1994 and if you do a point to point number all uh, between the peak in september 94 and the trough of april 2003 which is 9 years point to point the sensex was down 23% over 9 years i assure you 99% of the people perhaps in today's market don't recollect this are not even aware of this right but that period also taught me another thing right? that you can have a market which does this but if you have good businesses which are able to sort of allocate capital well they are generating a good return on capital they are throwing up their own cash flow then it was possible to make money during this 9 year period when point to point the sensex went no right and these were all typically businesses that had demonstrated these sort of characteristics so you know i would say to me this is a learning which has been there now ever since that period that eventually when you are investing in any company and this is sort of going back to the nuts and bolts of buffet it eventually comes down to does the business generate cash flow does it have a business which can grow if it can it can use that cash flow to redeploy in business right so uh, the business it throws up cash it reinvests the cash in the business that reinvestment is happening at a rate superior to cost of capital and then effectively you get this virtuous cycle which now the machine is running on its own right so it's like if you had a balcony at home and you had a pot over there and you put a seed in it imagine you put a few drops of water and then after that between the water and the sunlight the magic is that the tree is just sort of growing on its own and one day it becomes a tree 
right? So uh, to my mind, this interplay of cash flow coming from the business, getting reinvested at a rate higher than cost of capital, that's literally very simply the business of business, but it's also the business of investing. And therefore, that's always been the template, you know, ever since in my mind that if you're looking at businesses, these are the two which really sort of matter. Does the business throw up cash? Are you able to reinvest that cash at high rate of return in excess of cost? If you can do it, you know, the business will eventually create money. The fact that it is listed is actually incidental, right? Which is what Buffet sometimes says, right? you should not bother me. Uh, if the yeah. market were to close down, it should not matter to you. And that's the trick in a business which is generating cash flow and uh, return on capital. So that's pretty much been my simple sort of two-line thought process of how to look at businesses. But it took me time to get there. This is not, I mean, very honestly, I would say in 94, 95, even going up to 2000 in the early period, honestly, we didn't even look at cash flows very closely. We just looked at PNL, we looked at balance sheet. We didn't even draw up a clear cash flow statement to be able to distinguish between which companies are generating profits and generating cash flow and which company has accounting profits but may not have cash flow. It's actually having to borrow to even fund its operations, leave alone fund its growth. Right? So this distinction was not very clear to me. And again, I've talked about this earlier, but I think the other sort of uh, eye-popping point for me was maybe somewhere in the mid to late 2000s when I was chatting with somebody about Amazon because, you know, Amazon was getting discussed a lot even at that point of time. And, uh, you know, I was talking about the losses that the company was making and, you know, why should it be worth whatever it was worth at that point of time. And the simple question he asked me is that all that is fine, but why have they not raised money for seven years? Because the last time they raised equity money was 2001. And I said, that's a great question because if this company is making losses, yeah, Why is it not raising money? It should have to raise money. And that's when I went back, looked at the numbers again and figured that, yeah, he's reporting accounting losses, but he's not only generating operating cash flow, he's generating oodles of free cash flow. Mm -hmm. So he had an accounting loss, but he was generating enough free cash flow to keep that compounding machine going. So, you know, that sort of further put a filter on top of what I had already understood about cash flow and return on capital in, you know, by 2003. That sort of got reinforced when this person asked me to go back and look at Amazon. <laughs> so the the point that you mentioned on return on capital is profound. And I think, and I believe that if someone implements it, you know, you're set for better times. But unfortunately, when you talk to people about investing and picking stocks, is the narrative which impacts them more than this kind of thinking. Uh, uh, is there an easy way for someone to do this? Uh, how how do you get people to think of return on capital? I have, you know, I you, you go to people and talk to them. They'll talk PE, right? I guess PE is the it's way down the decision making process. Uh, they'll talk a price to book. They'll talk of valuation parameters, not what really the business is doing, right? The, the price comes into play. Uh, have you found an easy way to sell this to people to become better investors? Uh, I find that it works very well with most of my distributors. Because the first thing I tell them is that you've invested some business, some money in your business to become a businessman, because that's what you are when you are a distributor. And if that business is not generating 15, 16%, why would you not just leave it in the bank as a fixed deposit, right? So actually, most of them intuitively know this. But strangely, when they come to the stock market, they forget return on capital and start discussing all those other you know, <laughs> metrics that uh, you did. 
So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think once you are able to get that around your head that it is really the return on capital which drives any business decision and sort of just simplifies decision making. Just two points to sort of add color to that. There are some businesses that always blow out the lights in terms of return on capital. And there are some businesses which have lots more cyclicality in the way that their return on capital in sort of behaves. But the way I operate investing, I feel comfortable with both. You know, in one, you sort of emphasize valuations more than you do on the other. Uh, but both are equally acceptable ways. You know, I also um, looked at, actually, again, Serendipity stumbled into a McKinsey study, which goes back somewhere to about the mid-2000s which actually looked at what they call the persistency of return on capital in US companies. And, uh, you know, to me, that study was very interesting because it actually taught me two things. One, the persistent factor in any business is actually return on capital. It's not growth. Okay. Growth is actually an external variable over which the company has no control. Mm -hmm. They can do good things to try and benefit. That's a separate issue. That's management quality. But the variable they control is actually return on capital. It is not growth. So growth is a subset of what feeds into return on capital. What is intrinsic to the business is return on capital. And that is what the McKinsey study showed that companies who have companies, this is not sectors now, mm -hmm. companies who have demonstrated strong return on capital appear to have something going for them such that this becomes persistent. Right. So that is why I always say, I'm not looking at this from a growth perspective. To me, what is really persistent about a company's business model is its ROC. And therefore, that is what is the metric to sort of back. Equally, it may also be cyclical, but then we recognize its cyclicality. And once you recognize its cyclicality, you can build a strategy around that, right? So you effectively buy extremely cyclical businesses when return on capital is destroyed. As long as you know that, look, this company has a debt to equity structure where it can survive the bad period. It is the lowest cost producer, which means everybody else will go bankrupt before he does, which itself should help improve profitability. And when I look back at the last 10 years, I know for a fact that every four or five years, he hits profitability, which is forget about cost of capital, it is 2x cost of capital because that's how he takes care of his entire cycle. So you can use it even for cyclical businesses. But what's very important to remember is that it is ROIC, which is persistent. Growth is actually an externality, which even management has to accept. Great. That's a, that's a very nice point. Yeah. Uh, when do you sell a stock? So no easy answer to that, but as a fund manager, I would say, you know, the first sort of point at which you sell it is really when the fundamentals going back to what we discussed earlier are no longer playing out the way you, you know, sort of expected. That's honestly, I think the simplest definition of when you need to get rid of it. Uh, and typically that is not a point at time at which I would then tempt to emphasize valuations, right? So the first sort of jump that you do is, it's like a decision. Fundamentals are deteriorating. If they are deteriorating, you don't use valuations to say, should I sell or not sell? At best, they may only determine whether you sell today or tomorrow. It's a very, very tactical decision now to look at valuations. So the primary thing should always come from whether the fundamentals are deteriorating. The other very obvious candidate, but a very tricky one to implement is, is there a better alternative somewhere else? 
right? Because that may sometimes become a reason to say, okay, I'm going to buy this only because you know this one's fundamentals no longer make sense. The other thing that I've learned the hard way, and there's no simple formula to this, is that I'm always worried about what I call the triple P. Right? If you are at peak margins and simplify peak operating margins, not return on capital. If you are at um, uh, peak growth, right? So again, the kind of growth rates you're experiencing now are radically different from anything seen in the past or anything that you believe is sustainable. And you are at peak valuation multiple compared to peers. You're at peak multiples compared to your history. You're at peak multiples compared to, okay, I'm looking at this company in India, but what's the equivalent trading in uh, US or trading in Europe? And at its peak, where did it trade? So you sort of do a base level comparison. So if you hit this triple peak of peak growth, peak margin, peak valuation, then I think it's best for you to say, you know, not my cup of tea anymore. It's time to sort of exit. Okay, interesting. The other sort of allied part, Rahul, I would just say about selling decisions, and this comes again from my style and the way I manage portfolios. Uh, I never think of them necessarily as a binary decision. The cyclical businesses that I describe, they could be slightly more binary, meaning your position is zero or it is one, right? It's a binary outcome. Yep. But in the stocks where return on capital is persistent, you sometimes want to act more like a business owner than by the Graham philosophy of margin of safety. And being a business owner sometimes means maybe you make the valuation risk manageable for yourself by managing the position size rather than by saying zero one. Because, you know, the errors of uh, commission that I see in my own career over 30 years is the stocks where I just exited too early because I didn't have any imagination whatsoever. Now, I died, I doubt I would have let them go from 3% of my portfolio to 10% to 20% to 50%. Anyway, I'm running a mutual fund. I'd have most probably held it if it was a three-position position at three to four, but at least I'd have stayed in the business, right? So position size is a very good way to manage risk when you're talking about high-quality businesses. But even there, the PPP is something you should be worried about. If the triple peak is staring you in the face, then you know you need to be a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. Do uh, technicals play any role uh, in your decision-making on when to exit a stock? Some momentum indicator, some trend lines being broken? No, I would say uh, very significantly. Um, but I should rewind here. You know, when I did my prop trading days and I said there was a trading book, um, I will say that if you're running a trading book, there is no intelligent way to trade except for looking at some technicals. Now, whether you choose to look at momentum, you look at trend lines, you look at moving averages, that's your call. Mm. But trading requires a system. That trading requires a system which may be a combination of certain technical indicators along with some mechanical rules. Uh, when you come to slightly more long-term investing, I have found that that set of uh, sort of approaches doesn't translate very well over here. So uh, I would still most strongly by habit, look at a chart, but typically I no longer look at it for a binary outcome. All I'm looking for is a slight edge in terms of saying, you know, what is the story telling me? Is it telling me on balance? Okay, you want to buy this today, but maybe you should just be taking your time over the next few days rather than doing it today. But I use it more as a very tactical tool in terms of just seeing what story is the chart telling me. And it's also interesting because sometimes the chart might show you something that 
intuitively you've not realized when you were looking at the fundamental story in both directions so uh, but i suspect many people don't do that but i sort of learned to look at charts during my prop trading days so uh, i've learned to keep that in the background but you know can i not look at a stock chart the answer is no i will pull it up at some point and say you know let's see what the story says <laughs> yeah, of course uh, uh i'm and it's I'm, also sometimes you know so if you just look at where a stock is on a very long term chart relating to moving averages uh, and also if you look at valuation charts not just the you know price charts you know i think that is the best way for you to understand you know if i think i'm being contrarian here is the chart telling me that i'm contrarian or you know am i just kidding myself that you know this is a contrarian opportunity because sometimes the chart really tells you whether you're dealing with something which is contrarian or not right you can see how long it's been under drawdown you know how persistent that drawdown has been that sort of helps shape your own thought process right so last thing you want to do is buy a stock just because it's down 10% today saying oh i'm contrarian that's not contrarian <laughs> you said valuation chart what do you yeah, mean yeah. by valuation chart yeah so i you know i've had this discipline ever since i've used bloomberg so through all my different roles firms uh, i've used a standard set of valuation charts which just sort of plot the history of the stock in terms of its price earnings multiples its price to sales multiples price to book multiples so you just get a sense of you know i think i'm being contrarian but then you look at the price to book and you realize hold on you know i mean this is like the <laughs> top 25% of price to book in the last 10 years so who are you kidding <laughs> i just revealed i don't look at charts at all by the way so <laughs> that's a side uh, okay how do you so we spoken a little bit about this of course the cash flows and all but how do you detect fraud and how do you try and protect your investments your funds investments from a potential fraud case so a uh, good question rahul uh, um, you know i'd say one the minute you start looking at cash flow roc you've already sort of raised the bar to a level where many of the potential fraud start getting eliminated because you are emphasizing a company's ability to convert profits into cash you are emphasizing their ability to use cash to grow not that we are against companies that use debt to grow but you know it becomes part of your hygiene set that what am i looking for right uh, the other things that you look for which are typically visible in the balance sheet uh, and the annual reports you know related party transactions and i think on that front the level of disclosures has improved dramatically from when i started my career so you know i think things are a lot better today in terms of your ability to see where the transactions are happening as an institutional uh, investor our ability to you know even vote against some of these transactions in some cases and prevent them from happening <laughs> so you know that's a very important part of where you see related party quality of the auditors the qualifications that are coming through um, uh, 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 the sort of promoter remuneration and you know how that's flowing through in terms of how they've structured it so i'd say all of this along with uh, you know like it or not right i mean if my why for my mother whoever important person i'm not very good at the kitchen i mean they can cook a fabulous dish where they don't have to measure ingredients right if, if they're putting salt to it they can pick it up with their two fingers and add it and they still know it's the right quantity of salt Perfect, yeah. if you ask them how many grams it is they most probably don't know the answer and i think a lot of management reading is also partly eventually in that sense is a little bit of art 
And are you getting that comfort in terms of what they are saying and does it add up? And I think the most important part of this is too many people, including me when I started my career, get carried away with access to management. Right? If you haven't done the due diligence of seeing what the past data tells you, you will never be able to ask management effectively, you know, why is this not likely to happen or why do you think this is likely to happen? So I would say it's essentially a focus on numbers, a focus on the past, and which is why I'm a self-confessed. Self um, I don't like IPOs. I normally avoided investing in most IPOs when I've had a choice for many, many years. Because I feel in IPO companies, I don't have an edge. There's not enough historical information available. There's, um, you know, at best two and a half years of sketchy information before you make that investment. And you learn a lot more about the company as you keep meeting them and keep understanding, are they consistent? Are the metrics they talk about consistent? So I would say, you know, you can do all these things, but eventually there is that pinch of salt, which is judgment. There's no single methodology which will tell you you know who's good and who's fraudulent but cash flow um, you know i think speaks for itself yeah there's and, a pattern out there on the cash flow i think a lot of the scams that we all remember uh, going back all cash, flow. all cash flow it's, it's someone yeah. just had to look at the cash flow and say oh my god this is not adding up yeah. and stay away so if you remember um, uh, i mean if you remember the watergate scandal right in the us a little bit where Nixon lost his you know, job, eventually had to step on as president. Right? So I'm forgetting the names of the two journalists who tracked down that Woodward, story. Woodward. Bob Woodward. Uh, yeah, Bob Woodward, and, right? Uh, second one, I don't remember. Yeah. So when they're trying to figure out, you know, how to figure out who was responsible and where this connection goes, the words of their editor are actually applicable to investors. His simple message to them was, follow the cash. <laughs> Ah, I don't remember this. I should. Uh, this was the one single line of advice uh, their editor uh, gave them. And this is how they cracked the case, right? Because they follow the cash. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> I think that is very useful for any investor to sort of identify where there is, you know, potential fraud along with the other thing, quality of auditors, um, you know, related party transactions, all of this. Now let's talk position sizing. One of our points of discussion on every investor are, you referred to it, you've spoken of it, you've spoken of it in the context of a mutual fund, but you, of course, you know, you're an individual. Talk to us about how people should think about position sizing. So first question to ask yourself is, why are you in the equity market? Is it to take a exceptional level of risk? Not even exceptional, perhaps a humongous amount of risk Extraordinary risk. Or and get extraordinarily rich? Or are you just coming here to achieve your financial goals? Right? Now, unfortunately, too many people take the wrong message over here. Oh, look at Bill Gates. He got, you know, fabulously wealthy. But of course he did. He owned only one stock, right? But what did he do when he got wealthy? He started diversifying away from Microsoft stock, right? So the thing that gets you rich and the richest people in the world have become richest by owning a single stock not by owning a diversified portfolio. Now, if you're going to presume that, therefore, that is the route to riches, I would say be very, very careful. For every one successful businessman, there are 100 we don't write about who are failed. 
and they failed because all their wealth is in one business right so why are you coming to the stock market if you want this method of i want to be the next bill gates i want to be or even for that matter he is no longer with us but you know india's most reputed i think sort of self made investor rakesh junjunwala going back two years if you saw his portfolio 80% of his net worth was in three stocks he was more businessman in terms of being able to have disproportionate wealth of his in a few firms rather than having a diversified portfolio but that was okay for his risk taking appetite how many people have that kind of risk taking appetite and are willing to accept the kind of outcomes because for every mr junjunwala i kid you not there are thousands of wannabe people who never achieved the success he did but we don't write about them we only write about you know those who have been successful and therefore you know as they say the stories are only written about those who hunted the lions the lions have not written their own stories yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so this is the truth and history, therefore history belongs to the victors what is the statement yeah, yeah, same, 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 same. so therefore to my mind what most people first of all need to wake up to is that why have you come to the stock market now if you want to play the game that rakesh ji played extremely well and i think he showed you how successful he could be then you are in a different category i don't have any advice to offer you i've never tried that i don't know how to do it you could look at what he's done and try it yourself but if you are in the other category where you are actually looking at this thing look you know i've got a source of income i need to use that source of income to build up a nice nest egg for myself something which will let me enjoy the pleasures of life the luxuries of life so on and so forth whatever they might be then i think you need to come at this very different you need to have a more diversified portfolio it needs to be diversified across asset classes it needs to be diversified across styles it needs to be diversified across market caps it needs to be diversified across holdings you can't have a you know single stock being 60 70 80% of your portfolio you won't sleep well at night i mean what happened to me in 2000 when the markets came down i said 80% drawdown very simple two stocks were 90% of my portfolio at peak which is why the portfolio came down 80% you know when the market came down 40 right so uh, so to my mind therefore that position sizing becomes important um, we can again debate the right number but i would say typically most people need anywhere between 20 to 30 stocks in their portfolio if they are doing it on their own uh, as mutual funds we have an added complication we've got to give you daily liquidity um, the amounts of money we are managing is very very large so you know i'd say for us that number is more like 30 to 70 uh, but and typically 50 to 70 is what i would say but for an individual investor you could argue 20 to 30 is acceptable but you've got to manage positions at least because will you be comfortable if one single stock out of that 30 becomes 20% of your portfolio 30% of your portfolio it all sounds very good when it's going up in the direction you like the way to think about this is that if the stock falls 30% tomorrow how are you going to sleep at night If you're not going to sleep well at night, then don't own 30% of a single stock in your portfolio. So the math of position port portfolio sizing, Rahul, actually comes down to what will allow you to sleep well at night for most investors. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you know, 50% in a single stock, 30% down for whatever set of reasons. And in history, you see so many stocks have 30% drawdowns during a 20-year period where they may have gone up 100x. but you will find multiple 30% profits now if you can't handle that yeah then you know it's too much so really the first test is how much but i would say typically you know anything more than 5 to 10% in a single stock or about 10% you are starting to you know deal with volatility which you might not be very comfortable yeah okay
that's a great answer. On asset allocation, you mentioned diversify across assets. You gave the example of Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates, I believe, is now the largest owner of land in the US. So a uh, person who made all his wealth from the stock market, everyone wants to be that single company hero, but it turns out Bill Gates is putting all his money in land, right? So uh, what do you think of other asset classes? And if you can maybe share your personal experience, how do you like to diversify and how you think about diversification across asset classes? So you concentrate to get rich, but that's also a very quick uh, route to uh, losing your riches and you diversify to stay rich. So rich is a word. So let's say you diversify to sort of keep your lifestyle and you know, your sort of well-being where you would like it to be. Right. So concentrate to get rich, diversify to stay where you are. That's the simple principle. Uh, across asset classes, well, you know, I went into the late 90s thinking I was a 100% equities guy. I learned in that 2001 meltdown that I, was, I couldn't handle the risk of being 100% equities. So I've always had a mix of sort of fixed income and uh, equity in my portfolio. I don't do anything outside of these two asset classes because, you know, to me, property is just humongously painful. I mean, I own only one property where I live in and another property where I can spend time at. I don't own anything else. I don't intend to own because the frictional cost, cost of managing, etc. is just way too perverse. But uh, I think financial assets, you know, be it equities, be it bonds, be it particularly mutual funds, very easy to sort of control. Unfortunately, also very easy to sell, which creates its own problems uh, or even to buy because you can do it at a click of a button, right? Uh, but having said that, to my mind, these are great assets in terms of your ability to manage them easily and very simple to even transmit them, which is something you all need to be equally concerned about. That what happens? How will this pass down to my next generation? And, you know, these two assets are very simple in terms of executing that. I think the financial architecture that we have in India, digital nominations, all of that is just fabulous in terms of your ability to hold, transmit these assets. And even taxation is very favorable. I know you'll have the budget soon and all that nonsense about capital gains will come again. But the fact of the matter is we have a very attractive regime for financial assets. So I don't know what yeah. people are complaining about. And, yeah. uh, you know, use that advantageous regime to be long-term investors in both equities and fixed income in the mutual fund industry, it works very well. So yeah. I don't have any rocket answers for you. I only do uh, mutual funds. I don't do equities for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Yeah. So all my net worth is in this, except for my primary residence and my you know, sort of weekend home. What about gold? Your thoughts on gold? Uh, so gold is a bit like an insurance policy in my view, Rahul, and it's got a very unusual uh, outcome, right? So if you think of a world of distribution of returns, the normal curve, the normal curve doesn't work, but it has these fat tails at both ends, right? The beauty of gold is that it can actually work for you at both ends of the fat, which is why to me, gold is has some place in your portfolio as long as you think of it as an insurance policy. So uh, I've never treated it as a core allocation where you hold it and you know, sort of allow it to sort of accumulate. But it makes sense as an insurance policy because in times where things go horribly wrong, you're going to have drawdowns in all your other asset classes. This Gold. might be the only asset class which rises in value. At that time, you may want to actually liquidate that asset class and put it back into the liquid assets which have seen the drawdown. Right? So that convexity that it has, I think, really adds value to all portfolios. 
But the way to think about this is that it's closer to being a term insurance policy than it is a money back insurance policy. Not saying any insurance policy is a good investment, just you know, I think those are the two contexts in which it's easier to understand. Makes sense. Uh, you spoke about thinking of inheritance and passing it on. Uh, so you mentioned uh, you had a kid in, did you say year 2000 when the when everything was kind of falling apart? Uh, so uh, how, how are you teaching your kid or kids about investing? And also tell us whether they listen to you. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I haven't really taught them much about investing, though I've been trying to teach them something about uh, at least how to start managing. So actually there are two girls now, not just one. The older one has just started working. So we've been trying to get her to understand the concept of saving. And, uh, you know, there's a wonderful book written by somebody, most of you know equally well, uh, Monica Hallam. So I just gifted uh, her book to both of them when they were here in December for their holidays and said, you know, here's this hard copy book. Now, please take it back and read it carefully because there's a wealth of wisdom in this about, you know, uh, earning, saving, investing. So I think it's a fabulous sort of beginner's guide to uh, sort of understanding basic financial, but not investing. Investing is something they have some time to get to, but yeah. That's, the basic. that's a nice one. Uh, thoughts on living expenses. Do you keep X months of living expenses aside to tide over phases? And uh, how do you plan that? How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, because mutual funds are now sort of easily accessible in terms of liquidity. And, you know, everything that I own now is sort of jointly both my name, my wife's name, kids are nominees in most cases. So, you know, they have enough immediate access to it. So I didn't, I don't think so much about it as being liquid because anyway, you can get MF liquidity and, you know, T plus one or T plus two. So, don't necessarily think about it in that context in terms of having liquidity in my bank account because you know I think I can access that liquidity through the MFs in 48 hours. So not a big issue. No, no. But certainly, you know, not to take away from the point you're making, may not be so relevant to me today, but I hear what you're saying and I know people talk about it in terms of having a money box of certain months of income available to you for any setbacks you might experience. And I think that's a good starting point for younger people, right? Uh, and, but I think the most important thing for younger people, and that's the only thing I tried telling my daughter as well, because she says, I don't earn enough to save, is that you will never have enough to save unless you say, I want to save X, and then make sure that income minus expenses is equal to that X. Because if you say, I will save what is left over after my expenses, you're never going to have anything left. So that's the only thing that I would say is, you know, the income minus savings is what you spend, right? <laughs> that's what they should. That's the typical yeah. Indian formula, right? That's how we all were. That's all. True, our true. Okay. Now, before I move to my final set of questions, which is more about reading, etc., I want you to talk a little bit about India. Uh, we've, as a country, we've had uh, this whole early 90s reform, which was the moment right, that India would come. Then we had the 2002, 3, 4 phase, 3, 4 phase, the India shining phase, where it just seemed everything is falling into place. Of course, the economic parameters adding up, not adding up, I'm not getting into that. And now we have yet another phase that is happening and everyone believes this time it's different. So uh, I want you to talk to us and tell us, uh, what are you thinking about India at this point in time? And how do you see India panning out? And I'm talking, and I'm hoping you'll talk decades as against this year, next year, et cetera. 
yeah, I think we have a wonderful platform. Uh, we have a platform from which there is a lot which can be achieved. And I actually worry that there's too much focus on the aggregate size of the economy. Um, I love the fact that we are the fifth largest economy in the world, but I don't want that to take away from the fact that our per capita income is $2,500. Right? It doesn't matter to maybe 70% of the citizens of this country that you are the world's fifth largest economy because all they're seeing is their per capita income, which is you know, well under the per capita average because the median is even lower uh, you know, than that number. And therefore, there is a long, long way to go. And because there is a long, long way to go, uh, it's great because it means there is potential. Right? Even a $40,000 per capita economy, it's just harder to sweat growth from there. So what is the opportunity? The opportunity is your 2,500. There's a long way to go before you even reach middle income. Right now, low income. There's a long way to go even before you reach 12,000. If you can get to 12,000, imagine the quality of life your you know, citizens and your countrymen would have. I think that's a fabulous outcome. So you know, I love the fact that there's so much potential, but it also means that you know, the key to this success is execution, 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 right? And I am a bit wary of this. This is my decade. That is your decade. If you ask me, the last two decades have also been brilliant decades. Right? I mean, who knew that? Uh, I mean, okay, actually they did. If you actually go back and see the BRICS 2003 report, right? Dreaming with BRICS, Jim O'Neill, Rupa Purshodam. Do you know what they said over there? They forecast over there exactly where you are today. And that 2003 forecast also says that you will most probably be bigger than Japan in 2031, which is exactly what we are saying today. So, you know, the thing that we should feel good about is that there was a potential we had 20 years ago. We've executed that to a great measure. Maybe we could have done better, but we've executed it to great measure. And I'm excited about the fact that there is potential to do the same over the next 20 years, which can maybe you know nicely pull us up into the ranks of being a middle-income country. But I am not a soothsayer. I don't have a crystal ball to tell you, you know, whether it will be golden decade or not golden decade. All I can say is the last two decades have been exceptional. They've been for many of us, but I equally would submit they have not been good enough for many of our citizens. And therefore, there's lots more hard work we need to do over the next two decades. And just to take it back to that 2003 BRICS report, right? So the BRICS, or rather the BRIC, BRIC was yeah. Brazil, Russia, India, yeah. China. Mm -hmm. China more than achieved those targets. India has delivered those targets. Look at the other two. Yeah, the 50-50 shot, yeah. <laughs> that report, all four had potential. Right. So, uh, you know, I always show this one sort of slide in many of my presentations, which is Steve Jobs. It says that ideas are multipliers. The idea of India is a multiplier. It's a brilliant idea. Execution is worth millions. Yeah. And that's where we need to deliver. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. I like that answer. It's rooted in reality. It's rooted in uh, all fact. There's no like crystal ball gazing, which I like. Thank you for that. Uh, last few questions. How much time do you spend reading? A uh, fair bit of time, Rahul, but truth be told, uh, it's come down over the years because, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the only source of stuff you had, I mean, maybe 15 years ago was books. 
What's changed in the last 15 years is one is the internet, right? You're able to reach a lot of content, which you earlier couldn't, and you only had to wait for books to be able to do it, or maybe of course some magazines, but today the internet has made a lot more content easily accessible. The other truth about books, which has taken me 20 years to figure out is that books are still written on the basis that I must publish a 200 page book so that that is how publishers <laughs> will distribute it. Too when much of actually, a coincidence. Yeah, too much of actually, the whole book would have been written as a five page essay. Yeah. But nobody <laughs> buys a five page essay, right? So it has to be converted into a 200 page book. So I have actually found that the internet is now making a lot more content, which can give you everything a book can but in five pages or even in lesser characters. So that's become a very powerful source of information that didn't exist 15 years ago. <coughs> the other thing which has changed is uh, being able to access what you would have heard in the book, what you would have read in the book podcast. through audiovisual. Audio. The podcast, the YouTube, the Google Talks, you know, um, so many, you know, intelligent people giving interviews all over the world, yeah. part of forums and all of that becomes accessible to you. So actually my reading has come down, but, you know, I'd say the time I gave to reading earlier is sort of cut now into, yes, reading, plus all of this information on the internet, which may be more bite-sized as, as compared to book size. And then the audiovisual content coming through the podcasts and the, you know, video interviews on YouTube yeah. and other TV media. I can, I can relate to that. Uh, uh, can you recommend some things our uh, viewers and listeners should watch and read, if you will, to become better at what they do in terms of investments and just life in general? So um, I think when it comes to books, um, you know, one of my favorite authors has actually been, he was more academician than practitioner, uh, but Peter Bernstein. Okay. And I think both his books, Capital Ideas and Against the Gods, Against the Gods uh, yeah. which is about risk, are both fabulous books. And, you know, I read Capital Ideas when I was on campus and I read it 10 years later. When I read it on campus, it sounded like theory. I read it 10 years after campus again. And I said, bloody hell, if I only followed all of this in the last 10 years, I would have saved myself a lot of mistakes. But I think he does a fabulous job of connecting the academics to practicing in the real world. So I really love his two books. Outside of that, I would say I'm also a great fan of Howard Marks, uh, uh, you know, The Most Important Thing. I think that's a great, uh, you know, book to read. It's a collection of all the memos, but yeah, it's a simplified way to, you know, sort of read that. Uh, the Warren Buffet newsletters are fabulous. I mean, his annual uh, sort of thing, those are fabulous. Recently, I would say, you know, the two most profound books I've read in the last few years, one would be Investing the Last Liberal Art. Okay. Uh, that's a fabulous book because it sort of connected the dots in a way that I've also realized things are connected over the last 20 years, which is to say, you know, investing is not a single domain. It actually pulls in so many things from other domains, and which is why the title Investing the Last Liberal Art, because it's connected to so many other fields. So I think that's a brilliant book. And uh, Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money, I think, you know, great book in terms of understanding the nitty gritty of how we take financial decisions in an emotional world and how, you know, how money affects our psychology. So I think these are two more recent books that I really like. And of course, I shouldn't forget uh, Phil Fisher, uh, Common Stocks, uh, Uncommon Profits. I think, again, fabulous book in terms of thinking about investing as a business. Great. My final question to you. Uh, 
what is the one idea you would leave uh, our listeners and viewers with to think about in terms of investing or whatever? What do you think is important enough for them to think about? So this is not my uh, original line, but I've come to sort of adopt it as my own. Uh, so this is from Ed Thorpe. And I wrote an article about this in April 20 uh, called uh, Chance, Choice and Crisis, which was effectively borrowed out of his line. And he says, uh, life is a combination of chance and choice. Chance is the cards we are dealt. Choice is how we choose to play them. And uh, you know, I think that sort of, to me, the bulb went off in terms of the fact that that's been the way many things in my life have played out. Right, so chance are the cards you're dealt with, choices how you choose to play. <laughs> wonderful. On that note, Vetri, thank you very much for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you so much, Rod. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.